The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. It's good to be with you today. I invite you to take a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. From page 958 on a chair Bible underneath a chair close by you. If you're a first time guest today, I want to welcome you and invite you to take a connect card in the back of a chair, fill out the information on that, and later in our service when we receive our offering, we'd only like for you to participate when the plate passes by placing that connect card in there and letting us know that you're here worshiping with us today. I also want you to know that immediately following this worship service in the fellowship hall, which is the building across the courtyard directly behind you, there'll be people to direct you, there's a, an event we're calling Growth Group Connect. So if you're new to Parkwood, you've been here a while, you you're, want to get involved in a growth group, you don't know how, today is a first step. It's just a conversation to meet people from growth groups and an opportunity for you to find a growth group uh, for you and your family where you could connect uh, together, So I invite you and hope you'll take a few minutes and go by there immediately following this worship service this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 2 through 16. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. I invite you to stand please as I read the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair it is a disgrace for him but if a woman has long hair it is for her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering if anyone is inclined to be contentious we have no such practice nor do the churches of God let's pray Lord we need your help now to not react and treat your word as irrelevant we need your help to understand what is said here and why. And we need your help to make application. So lead us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So I'll just ask the question rambling around in some of your heads. Why 
would we study a text about head coverings at a church in Gastonia in 2020? I'll just say this to you. You're not too far removed from it. So sitting at my desk studying, and there's a, there's a picture I have in my office, and I won't explain why I have it there. Uh, but I was studying, and I jumped up and I ran over to the picture because I remembered. So I want to share it with you. This is a picture of the very first day of the worship gathering, that's me, of the worship gathering at Parkwood. Now, I don't know if you can see it or not, but if you look closely, most of the women are wearing a hat. None of the men are wearing a hat, but men wore hats. You know how I know? Look in the back of the room, hanging on the wall, the men's hats. They took them off before they got in and they gathered. You say, what are you saying, preacher? We all need to wear a hat. Nope. Listen carefully. I want to ask them a question. Unfortunately, most of them are no longer with us. But here's my question. Why are many of the women wearing hats? Was it tradition? Was it fashion? Or was it conviction? Why are a few of the women choosing not to wear a hat? Why are none of the men wearing a hat? Was it tradition? Was it fashion? Or was it conviction? Here's my main idea today. The manner that we conduct ourselves in public worship communicates what we believe about God and one another. And we've got to understand the context of where Paul wrote. At this point in time in Corinth, women who were married, who lived in Corinth, forget the church, just women in general, women who lived in Corinth at this point in time wore a head covering when they were married. It's a little unclear whether all women wore one, but definitely a woman who was married, when she was in public, she covered her head. A movement started from Rome among upper-class women who decided that they were going to change their status socially. And they were going to make it known that they were liberated. They didn't use that word. And they were going to cast off the head coverings. And this was beginning to move into the other major Roman cities, of which was Corinth. So Paul writes at this point in time, and he addresses a very practical cultural situation. And at the point of his writing, apparently, most of the women at the church at Corinth were maintaining the practice as they gathered to worship. That's why he writes in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now, before I progress, I want to I ask and answer the question, what does he mean by tradition? Tradition is a specific practice that has been handed down. In a church, a tradition is a practice that the church uses to convey what it believes. 
So over time, things happen with traditions. For example, we can forget what we believe and simply practice the tradition without any knowledge of really what we're doing. Some of you young men may have been fussed at at some point for walking in the church with your hat on. And you just thought some grumpy old man told you to take it off. The grumpy old man probably wasn't thinking about this text either. He just knew nobody wears a hat in church. We can forget what we believe. Or we can change what we believe either because we've been corrected by the scripture that we've believed the wrong thing, thus practicing the wrong thing, or we can be coerced by the culture and change our belief and do away with a tradition that we ought to keep because that tradition conveys what the Bible teaches. There's one other option. As culture changes, do women in our culture wear head coverings? No. As culture changes, the tradition likely should change because the tradition is confusing to the world around it. So this sermon is not an argument for tradition. The purpose of this text and this message is to cause us to reflect on what we are communicating when we gather. And from this text, what are the things we must communicate? Number one, the manner that we conduct ourselves in public worship communicates what we believe about God. And from this text are two things that we ought to communicate we believe. Number one, that he is the supreme authority. Verse three, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, I need your help. Don't look at your phone. Don't check your text messages for the next few minutes. Don't count the number of lights in the ceiling. You're going to need to use your brain. It's going to require logic. So let's, let's work through a logical understanding of what's happening in this text. And I'm going to start by what it doesn't mean. This text does not denote hierarchy. If it denoted hierarchy, it would begin where it ended. That the head of Christ is God. Some have argued that this text is communicating source, where someone comes from. Well, that's heretical. Because the head of Christ is God, if head here means source, that the source of Christ is God, then that means Jesus is not God. That he's a created being. Jesus is God, he is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Some have said that this is a text on equality to explain it. All right? Wife and husband are equal in that they're both made in the image of God. I agree with that, and I'm going to make a major point about it in a moment. 
that Christ and God the Father are one, therefore co-equal. However, look where the verse starts. The head of every man is Christ. Is man and Christ equal? No. So what in the world does this text mean? It centers on the word head. Now much has been written on this verse. Much, much, much. So let me, instead of explaining to you every possible interpretation of what this could mean, bring it down to what the consensus is among evangelical Bible-believing scholars. That head is used to connote authoritative relationship. That the headship of Christ, husbands, and God had one thing in common to which Paul is drawing attention. That each head should be honored. The practical concern becomes most evident when you look in verses 4 and 5 where the word dishonor is used. By their actions in public worship, men are expected to honor Christ, and so are women. Wives are expected to honor their husbands just as Christ brings glory and honor to his heavenly Father. Now, when we use the word authority, authority does not denote inferiority. We not means, let's just go right at it, that men are superior to women or, to say it negatively, that women are inferior to men. There's a very practical thing that plays out in the life of a church. God has established spiritual leaders or elders. In Hebrews 13 and 1 Peter 5, he tells the congregation of believers to honor and to obey its leaders. This submission is voluntary. The position and the role is to which some of God's people are called to. But no one of us who've been brought up in the Christian tradition, according to the Word of God, would say that we are inferior to an elder. We are equal in Christ. We are one in Christ. So we must be careful that we don't get hung up in the cultural mess that's going on around us, impose that on the Bible, and reject what the Scripture's teaching here. That we are expected in human relationships and within the life of the church to give honor and ultimately to give honor where it is due to the one who deserves all glory and honor, the one who inspired the very word we are now studying. In Colossians 1.18, it says, He, that is Christ, is the head of the body. He is our authority. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So we gather here. Every Sunday we gather here to acknowledge that Christ is the head of the church. And that Christ is to be preeminent in everything that we do, both while we are gathered and when we leave. He is our Lord. We must never elevate people or some kind of cultural issue above the preeminent head. Amen? Second, He is the Creator. Verse 7. 
For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. So the wearing of a head covering has to do with distinguishing between men and women. What I just said is quite simple, but very profound in understanding this text. It has to do with distinguishing between men and women. The crucial clarification we have is in verse 7. That it is not intended to mean that men are made in the image of God and women are not. The Bible makes this clear. Genesis 1.27 So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. That both male and female, men and women, are created in God's image. One is not superior to the other. So then what does it mean that the woman is the glory of man? Listen very carefully. This has to do with what God has done. Now my sisters and my brothers, when you understand this as a work of God, things take on a completely different meaning. What Paul is appealing to here throughout this argument is Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 2, we have the explanation of the creation of woman. The Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Let me just pause right here. My dear sisters, I think some of you, when you hear the word helper, you hear the word servant, maid. It's not what the, the word means. The word is either. Do you know what the word refers to or who the word refers to most in the Old Testament? God not women. That God is our helper. My sisters, I'm not saying he's called you God, but he's used a word to describe you that he has used to describe himself. And Lord knows men need help. <laughs> it's the word Jesus used when he said the Holy Spirit will come to you in John 16, he called him the helper. So here's the question. How did God bring this helper to be? So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man then the man said this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called out of man that's what woman means because 
He should answer, she was taken out of me. In this moment, God is glorified by Adam for what he has done. So the question then is, how does the manner in which a husband, honor, a, a, a wife honors her husband glorify God? Here's the answer, ladies is that in that you are reflecting the Trinitarian nature of God himself. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. In John chapter 16, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In John chapter 12, Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. So you have the Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Father, and the Spirit glorifying the Son and the Father. That is the nature of the relationship of the Godhead, and that is to be represented in the context of the husband and wife relationship. Paul is not denying here that women are in the image of glory of God. But he is concentrating on the distinctive role that a woman has, a wife has, to bring glory and honor to her husband. Paul's point is that this created difference between husbands and wives has not changed because you've become Christians. It remains. The created order should still be respected. And when we gather to worship, it should be evident. And ultimately, only Christ is the one to whom glory is to be given. Then you have this very confusing verse, verse 10. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority over her head because of the angels. The confusing part is what the word is messenger here. Does he mean heavenly angels? Does he mean some other messenger? I'm not going to debate it. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Fellers, none of you got here today without a woman. Now that's quite literal. Some of you couldn't have gotten out of bed this morning without your wife helping you. But what I mean is, none of you showed up on this earth without a mother. Isn't it interesting how God has designed things to keep us humble? In Genesis chapter 4, this is what Paul's drawing on. It says, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, this is what she said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Eve's saying what Paul is saying in verse 12. All things are from God. Let me take a sidebar for just a moment. This week was the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. This Sunday is often referred to as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. The core issue in this entire discussion and debate surrounding abortion, the core issue is where does life come from? Is life a sovereign choice of human beings? 
Yes, a baby comes to be because of the act of a man and a woman. But is the choice for that life to remain simply lie in the hands of a human? Life is from God. And what we must all realize is that that must drive our action. It must drive what we do. It must drive how we respond. So as we think about the sanctity of life, and let's raise some of these other issues because they come to bear here, and we think about homosexuality and transgenderism and other similar subjects that are staring us in the face and confronting every area of our life, These issues are pressing into our music, our media, our art, our literature, our education, our business, and even into churches. At the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, Roman society was going through a major transitional period where, among other things, women were getting rid of their head coverings and other social norms so that they could express themselves sexually. Men and women were changing their hairstyles. Men were letting their hair grow. Women were cutting their hair off, some even shaving it. Most of these hairstyles were tied to homosexuality. It was a way of saying to the culture around you, I'm a homosexual. So for those of us that think we just woke up in the 21st century and dealt with these issues for the first time in human history, we're wrong. This has happened before. And here's what's fascinating to me. This was happening when Christianity was founded and flourished. And for those of you who think Christianity's coming to an end, she came to life in a world like this. That should humble you and wake you up in a good way. 1 Corinthians helps us to know how that we as followers of Christ must respond in a similar situation in all of life. And this text guides us in how we navigate coming together in public worship so that we communicate God is primary and man is secondary. But it does communicate what we believe about each other. The manner in which we conduct ourselves in public worship communicates what we believe about one another. It should communicate that we believe we are male and female. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper, verse 13, for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory, for her hair is given to her for her covering? Isn't it interesting that nature is... God makes our hair fall out, fellas. Wherever you go, whatever time period you study in art, here's what you're going to find. Men have a different hairstyle than women. Primarily, men and women still do in the culture in which we live. We still have different places where men get their hair cut and women get their hair cut. Primarily. We still have parts in the stores. If you go to Belks, there's still a men's department and a women's department. So when we gather, here's Paul's argument, when we gather, it ought to be like the natural order of things. Men should clearly be men and women should be clearly be women. 
That does not mean that we come up with a uniform or a set wardrobe that everybody who's a man's got to wear and everyone who's a woman got to wear. We're not Amish. That's not what we do. Yet, we must give thought to how we present ourselves so that when we do come to public worship, we are not diverting the attention of our brothers and sisters away from the one whom we have come to glorify. Our gatherings must never be about the individual. Men and women must never dress in a sexually provocative way. If Paul was writing today, he'd have to write about this. Don't play naive. You know when you're putting on your clothes what you're doing. You know what you're trying to draw attention to. And when you draw attention to yourself, you are violating 1 Corinthians 10.31 that whatever you do, you're to do it all to the glory of God. This is a quote. When Christians display this creational order in worship that we're men and women, God is pleased. Gender distinctions are not a curse to be covered. They are a blessing to be celebrated. What a refreshing place we get to be in a culture gone nuts. That we are male and female. Some are husband and wife. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. He's being sarcastic. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Most cultures come up with a way for men and women to publicly display that they're married. For much of history, and still in some places of the world, a woman who is out in public with her head covered is saying to you, I'm married. We don't do that culturally anymore. We do it very subtly with a ring. But we still do it. We still communicate that we are, in fact, married. So in our growth groups and in our worship services, when we gather, we should be clear that we are husband and wife. We should do it in such a way that it reveals what the intent of this text is trying to display. Let me appeal to the women for a moment. According to Ephesians chapter 5, the greatest need that every man has is to be respected. My sisters, you must never subvert your husband in public. Even subtly. The greatest need, using Ephesians 5, that a woman has is to be nourished and to be cherished. And the responsibility falls on a man to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Men, you must never demean your wife publicly. Ever. 
You've heard me say when I'd come to an illustration point in a sermon before, now this is not a moment to elbow your spouse or to cut your eyes across at them. The reason I say that is because I see it so much from up here when I'm preaching. But the real reason I say it is because you're violating 1 Corinthians 11 when you do that. You are dishonoring each other. You're doing what should not be done in public. Now, are there times when the preaching of the word should warrant serious discussion among you as husband and wife? Absolutely, but that should happen in private. And let me say another place it should never happen. It should never happen in the context of a growth group. I've had reports of men and women speaking hatefully and sarcastically to each other in the context of growth group. Could I just say something to the rest of you? Call it out the moment you see it. That's inappropriate. That which you tolerate, you endorse. We must not dishonor one another in the context of worship. You say, what about the rest of us that aren't married? First Peter, excuse me, First Timothy 5, 1 and 2 talks about treating older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, and younger women as sisters. And then it adds this line, with absolute purity. We're all the family of God. We may not all be husbands and wives, but we're all a part of the family. And we're to respect each other as members of family. Now, for some of us, that's hard. For some of you, that's difficult because your family is a disrespectful place. But in this family, it is to be a place of respect and honor and joy and kindness. You know why? Because we are one in Christ. Christ has redeemed us. We are his people. Verse 4, every man who prays and prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. You say, Jeff, what does that have to do with being one in Christ? Don't miss it. Prior to this point in time in the Jewish tradition, when you approached the temple, the women only got so far and they had to stay in the court of women and the men kept going. Now they had to cover their heads, by the way. Now we have a total reverse of how things have happened. Men no longer uncover the head. And now men and women together, though remaining distinctly male and female, come together in Jesus Christ and worship him together. Men and women pray and prophesy. You see it? Both. The woman is to remain distinct. And honorable to her husband and as she does that. And that's going to help us understand when we get over to chapter 14 about this part about a woman being silent. What does that mean? The Bible's not contradicting itself here. There's some very specific meaning there. Some of y'all are going, what's prophecy mean? We'll, we'll get there. Calm down. We'll get there. Chapter 12 has a lot to say about this. So does 14. Now let me tell you this. Please. When you get to growth group this week, don't debate prophecy in silence. Don't, don't go past the forest here that we're dealing with and only get on focused on the trees. Deal with these issues of 
how we are to be as men and women. The point is that people of God, specifically men and women, husbands and wives, participate together in the gathered worship. And let me just say, thank God for you, my sisters. Worship would be a monotone thing if it was just a bunch of men. Thank God for your sweet voices and song and prayer. Thank God for your input in the context of growth groups. Thank God for you. So what now? I have three very quick questions. Are we conducting ourselves in public worship in a manner that communicates biblical truth? Paul commends them in verse 2 for maintaining their traditions. He says in verse 16, if anybody's inclined to be contentious, they want to argue about this. We have no such practice. And then he says, nor do the churches of God. He's saying that we should reflect the fact that we're the body of Christ when we gather to worship and that our conduct and practices must find their warrant in Scripture. That we should not knowingly do anything that disregards or disobeys the teaching of Scripture. That's why we at Parkwood seek every week to share in a simple and straightforward worship service centered on Christ. And that our growth groups are simple and straightforward times gathered on the Word of God and on caring for one another. Second, are we conducting ourselves in public worship in a manner that communicates the gospel? Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that, that of many that they may be saved. 1 Corinthians 10. So when we allow our personal preferences merely to dictate our worship services, what kind of gospel are we communicating? When cultural norms dictate how we plan and participate in a worship service, what kind of gospel is that communicating? We are a distinct people, brothers and sisters. We live in a very distinct and difficult time, but when we gather, we gather as a distinct people who communicate the gospel. We come to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that he gave his life for us to redeem us from our sin because we have fallen short of the glory of God. He has redeemed us and brought us back into right relationship with God that we might now be able to glorify God. And that is what we should do when we come together. So my last question, are we conducting ourselves in public worship in a manner that glorifies God? So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So men and women, I ask you, did you decide what to wear this morning based on whether or not you looked good or that you'd bring glory to God when you gathered? Did you decide the manner in which you would worship this morning, the way you would sing and participate to communicate your love for you or the glory of God? I ask us all, do we attend worship services here at Parkwood Baptist because we like it? Or are we here to glorify God? 
50 years from now, they won't look at still pictures and wonder what people were thinking and saying. 50 years from now, they'll download a service and they'll watch it. And they'll know exactly what we said. And they'll see exactly how we responded. And they'll know what we believed. What we do matters. And that's Paul's argument for the next several weeks now. What we do when we come together matters deeply. Let's pray. Lord, I ask now that as we consider the teaching of this text, that we would consider first our relationship with you. Are we in fact in Christ? For those who do not know you, Lord, I pray they would turn to you. Lord, we've all been confronted with our preference today, either overtly or through the Holy Spirit bringing something to our mind. I pray that we would confess the desire we have to glorify self and lay it aside. Lord, I pray now that we as your followers, as a local church, would join together and take the, the teaching of this next song and make it our prayer, not just today, but each time we gather. Yet not I, but Christ through me. May you be glorified, Jesus. May you be glorified in this place and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.